Hello, fam. Welcome back. I am so glad you're here because today we're addressing taboo OCD themes using ICBT with our compassionate and caring guest, Catherine Goldhouse, LICSW. So get ready, fam, because this often loaded topic is offering a big helping of hope, and we are here for it. I'm Nicole Morris, licensed marriage and family therapist and mental health correspondent, and let me be the first to say, welcome to the family, the OCD family, that is. I am here to create a community of support for family members, spouses, partners, parents, adult children, as there may be adult words, and chosen family of OCD sufferers and their community. I've had over 22 years of experience in the mental health field, but please note that this information does not qualify or substitute as a diagnostic evaluation, therapy, or treatment, and it is presented on an as-is basis. Please follow up with a qualified mental health provider in your area regarding concerns for yourself or loved ones. Thank you for joining us today. Now, let's get started. Alrighty. Wow. Can you believe that it will already be February by next week? I mean, if you're catching this in real time, the month flew by. And for our replay fam, whether you're catching it this month or this year or next, I'm so glad you're here too. This week has been a good one overall for us. We have a lot of birthdays that fall in the fall and in the winter, and this week was no exception. Also, the kiddos had some more remote synchronous learning, which has just been as fun as it sounds. <laughs> and it's just been a rainy, slushy, sometimes frozen, sometimes wet week with a lot of gray days here in the Midwest region of the States, but a good week overall. And we had less remote learning days this week, so I'll take that win. Yes, I will. <laughs> More of that, please. Also, I got to have a little lunch date today with my handsome hub, so that's always fun and fantastic. And I'm getting ready to curl and whirl my daughter up for a PTA dance with said hub. So he really lucked out with two dates because he's getting to take out all the ladies of the house. And so all in all... It's been a great week. But I'm also thrilled because every Friday, fam, you know how we do it. We get together here and we get to engage in more conversations, more chats, more hope that lets us know we're not alone. And today is a really special and really important episode because we're taking on some biggies in terms of OCD content and themes. That's right. So with that, I'm also going to go ahead and share a trigger warning too, because we're going to be addressing how OCD entangles itself when it comes to sexual themes, harm, and more. And these are hard conversations to have, not because there is something wrong with you or your loved ones if you've ever dealt with these subtypes, but because even though OCD is OCD is OCD, some themes are more stigmatized, judged more heavily, or completely misunderstood altogether. And because there is so much fear and shame around this content, people often A, don't talk about it, or B, they do and sometimes get canceled or fear defamation and have to deal with a lot of drama because of their association with even speaking about said themes. And you know what, fam? That sucks. It really does, because as we will discuss today, which includes but is not limited to pedophilia, OCD, incest, bestiality, harm, groinal responses, and more, there is no evidence, let alone relevance, that OCD sufferers battling with these intrusive inferences of doubt are the monsters that they fear they could be. 
But the reaction to speaking up and out about these themes can negatively reinforce the stigma. So I cherish the opportunities where we can address and destigmatize, yes please, more of these taboo subtypes and foster some more hope. But today we get to go a step further and offer insight and hope using the evidence-based treatment of inference-based CBT, otherwise known as ICBT, for the treatment of these themes. The idea for this episode really bubbled up for me when I was at the 28th International OCD Conference in San Francisco, and I was really inspired by a panel I attended, which included our esteemed guest expert, Catherine Goldhouse, where she was really able to speak to how cruel it can feel for sufferers and loved ones to try and embrace uncertainty models around these themes. And I'm paraphrasing here. And as you will hear from both of us today, we are not anti-ERP or ACT with ERP, which are two of the treatment models for our newer fan that tend to lean into this uncertainty realm. But when we recognize that we have an option that is compassionate and leads to the supportive resolution of these reasoning errors, living and amplified in the imagination, this leads to a different sort of experience when we address these subtypes within an ICBT framework. So my goal with complete transparency here, fam, is to say, hey, here's an option for treatment. That's it. I want to be transparent and say what other evidence-based treatments for OCD can help. If you or your loved one has been feeling stuck or if you're a practitioner and you're like, I have a client or clients that are wrestling with these themes and I don't know how to get us beyond this point here, then I'm so glad we can share this treatment option with you. So let me share just a bit more about Catherine here, and then we'll get right to it, I promise, fam, because there's lots to cover. Catherine is a psychotherapist with an online private practice devoted to treating adults with OCD in Maine, Massachusetts, Florida, and California. She trained at McLean Hospital, that's Harvard Medical School's largest psychiatric affiliate, and OCDI. After being trained by Fred Ardema, which fam, you may recognize that name because not only is he one of the co-founders and creators of ICBT, but he's been a guest here with us, with the fam. And Catherine then became one of the first clinicians, after getting trained by Fred, in the United States to start training other clinicians in ICBT, where she has offered nine-week courses and continues to do so seasonally with an original curriculum that helps clinicians both learn and teach ICBT in a way that is inclusive of many different learning styles. And I love that because as we discuss here with the fam, if we can increase access, then that increases hope. So let's get to it, fam. Well, welcome back to the OCD Family Podcast. And today I am I'm so thrilled because we are honored to have Catherine Goldhouse here with us in our virtual studio and just very, very grateful for her time and her expertise. And I know, fam, that you're going to get so much out of this. So first things first, Catherine, welcome. Thank you. I'm so happy to be here. Oh, we are thrilled to have you. Now, fam, we are going to talk about some really important topics today. We're going to be talking about some of the more taboo themes that can come up in OCD. And these themes are real tough. Even for people currently in treatment, sometimes even for therapists or practitioners, these are tough themes to know how to navigate around. There's often some implicit fear or shame around why am I having these kind of thoughts? And so we're going to lay that all out today. But first, I would love to know, Catherine, 
How did you get into treating OCD? Has this been a target area that you focused on in your practice over time? Or was there something that drew you into working within the specialty? Yeah. So when I was a little girl, I had OCD, but I didn't realize it was OCD. It wasn't diagnosed as OCD. And as I went through my career, I was drawn to OCD patients and helping them. And then eventually I had a good friend who is also a therapist, Julia Hale, and she specializes in treating OCD. And I loved hearing about what she was doing. It was so different than the work other therapists were doing. It was just much more dynamic and engaging and active. And I'd figured, well, one day when I go into private practice, I think I'll gravitate towards that. And along the way, I realized that I had had OCD myself. And as soon as I was in a group practice and I got all the OCD folks because there's so few OCD therapists. So anytime someone came along with OCD, they're like, okay, go. And then I just loved it. And so then when I opened my own private practice, I decided I wanted it to be dedicated to helping people with OCD. Yeah. So it was after the fact that you were already treating OCD clients that you realized, hey, this thing that I've been experiencing for different seasons and chunks of my life in varying intensities was also OCD. That came after really getting into the work for you. Mm-hmm. Yeah, in the beginning. Yeah. yeah. The same for me, actually, because I knew I always had anxiety. Uh, I just thought of it as generalized anxiety. And it was not until actually I was in the BTDI training going through some of the the different content, not even particularly because of what they were saying, because they were reinforcing what I had already learned thus far. But I just had this aha moment of going like, oh my gosh, I have OCD. This mm-hmm. is what OCD is. There is something underlying this anxiety that I wasn't getting. I wasn't queuing into. And so it is fascinating because you can even treat it for a while and then go, oh my gosh, wait a minute. Some of this Mm -hmm. really, really is familiar. So you went into private practice and you were really leaning into the OCD specialty. You had a passion for it. At that point, it sounds like you did know that you had OCD as well. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And then let's talk about inference-based cognitive behavioral therapy as well. Because when you started first learning about OCD, I'm guessing your training And the bulk of your education around treatment was probably based in an exposure and response prevention model, right? Yep. Yeah. And so for NUFAM, that's what ERP is. If if you hear us referencing ERP, that's exposure and response prevention. Inference-based CBT, that's inference-based cognitive behavioral therapy, otherwise known as ICBT, wasn't really on the scene or gained traction in the U.S., I'll specify, here in the U.S., until the last really couple of years. But it has been known more broadly worldwide for even longer because there are decades of research and lots of content and learning around ICBT. So I would love to hear, when you went into private practice, I'm guessing during your tenure in in private practice, this is when you became aware of ICBT. But I would love to hear the story in terms of how you came across this model. Because Catherine, fam, is one of the earliest disseminators, and I believe, if not the first, person to really set up a training regimen for ICBT here in the U.S. So we'd love to hear more about how you came involved with ICBT. Yeah. So like you said, what I had been taught was all ERP-based and ACT-based. And I was constantly doing trainings and constantly seeking consultation. 
And I was in a consultation group with someone considered like a real expert in OCD treatment. And the focus was on ACT and ERT. And I had, I was working with a client at the time who was in so much tremendous pain and was crying every session because she was afraid. What if I'm a pedophile? And this is someone who clearly was not actually the way that it sort of started for her. I think she was watching a TV show and there was maybe like a pedophile on trial or something. And she was able to imagine being in that same chair in the courtroom. Mm -hmm. And then she thought, well, if I can imagine being in that chair in the courtroom, that must mean that I'm capable of being a pedophile. Which, of course, it doesn't work like that. I can imagine being an astronaut, like going to the moon. It doesn't mean that's going to happen. Right. Right. Yeah. So she was in so much pain. And all of this, like, acceptance of uncertainty, like, it wasn't doing it for her. And so I went to this consultation group and I said, so I have this young woman who's afraid that she's a pedophile and... Like, I can't just keep telling her, well, maybe you are, maybe you are. Mm -hmm. And the person, this expert was like, that's what you have to do. And I'm like, I can't do that. That's, that's unkind. You know? Mm -hmm. And she's like, well, being an OCD therapist isn't for everyone. Wow. And how invalidating for you. Yeah. Yeah. So, right. And so I was like, okay, well, I guess I just have to keep trying this. And so I went to the next session and I basically said, you can't be sure of anything like it's possible. But and she just burst into tears. And I was like, I can't. I can't. There's got to be another way Mm -hmm. because I know she's not a pedophile. Mm -hmm. Right. I know that. And yet I'm asking her to accept uncertainty around it. It just felt very it felt very unfair, like this extreme aversion to anything that could resemble reassurance. Mm-hmm. You know, you're sort of taught to be allergic to that right. in learning ERP. And so even though I knew she wasn't, I wasn't in any way allowed to steer her towards that. It was just accepting uncertainty. Maybe you are, maybe you aren't. What are you going to do? You know, mm-hmm. and during this time in the, the large therapist OCD Facebook group, Someone was bringing up, Carl Robbins was answering questions in a certain way that was very different, like when clinicians would ask for some advice. And I reached out to him and I said, what is this? Because this seems different than ERP and I'd like to know more. Mm -hmm. And then I joined this at the time, which was a very small Mm -hmm. Facebook group for Mm -hmm. ICBT therapists and read the book, the manual. Mm -hmm. And the manual is great. I mean, it's it's the only book we have available on doing ICBT as therapist. Mm-hmm. But there was a lot of it that was not intuitive for me in the way that it was laid out. And so I probably read that book like 50 or 60 times. And yeah. I just, I kept thinking like, okay, I have to find a way to reteach this to myself in a way that makes more intuitive sense. Mm-hmm. And so I started making all these worksheets or rewriting the modules in a way that made sense for me or giving examples or I think in metaphor a lot. And so kind of trying to find metaphors that better articulated the point that was trying to be made. Mm -hmm. And then from there, it was like, oh, I'd share it with the group and people were really receptive. And I thought I should just take all this material and people are so hungry to learn more. Mm -hmm. And we only have one resource, which is the manual. 
maybe people are struggling the same way that I was and people seem to like the way that I'm explaining things. And so why don't I just offer a course? And so I created this whole course for people. And during this time, I'm starting to use ICBT with clients and it's going really, really well. Mm -hmm. I feel like I am speaking to them in a way that feels more honest to me mm-hmm. because I'm not asking them to accept something that I would never accept myself and that I don't believe to be true about them. And so that felt really good just for me as a therapist. And I think for clients themselves, I think it was much gentler than ERP. Mm-hmm. And this word gentler, I think it describes the situation very well, but that doesn't mean less impactful necessarily, mm-hmm. right? Like. Asking someone to endure their greatest fear is not gentle. It's very difficult. Mm -hmm. It can be very effective, but there are a lot of people who don't want to do that. Mm -hmm. And ICBT asks people to look at the way that they come to conclusion. And it's just a much gentler approach that people are more receptive to. And that's not to knock ERP, but I think it's not as gentle, right? Like that's just a statement of fact. Yeah. I mean, if you think about it, OCD isn't gentle. And so some of the really terrifying thoughts and obsessions and inferences of doubt that we can experience as OCD sufferers are going to feel very, very distressing, to say the least. And so what you're speaking to with ERP and for anybody tuning in going, well, why would you ever be like, maybe you are a pedophile? Like common sense wise, yeah, if we zoom out and we're like, why would you say that, right? Like that feels mm-hmm. like, it feels ridiculous. But at the same time, what ERP does is it takes a really downstream approach where they start at the compulsions and work backwards to try and help create new learning in the brain. So it does mean enduring and sitting with these greatest fears. Doesn't make it true, but it does mean you're basically going head on against this monster, this, this, this idea, this thought, right? And so it's one of those things where when it comes to some of these harder themes, and they're all hard in their own way, so I, I hate to even prioritize or, or list them out because you can have what somebody would perceive as a much gentler theme and it's wreaking complete havoc and hell in your life. And so I don't want to downplay that. But when we think about taboo themes like pedophilia, OCD, it could be a gender identity or sexual orientation, OCD. When we think about incest, when we think about even some of the scrupulosity and and existential different themes that can pop up for people, it feels so much more taboo because whether we like it or not, there is some stigma around even saying that word out loud let alone right. if you are the person that's had this really terrifying, really distressing, really disgusting thought to you, or the fact that, like you said for your client, I, that I could picture myself sitting in the chair. I I must be capable of this if I can imagine being in this person's shoes. And so you can see how OCD takes somebody that can empathize with another situation and now is using that as bait that you were probably this terrible monster. And so doing ERP around this has been done and will continue to be done and practiced by folks, but you're not speaking to the efficacy when you're talking about how difficult that is to create new learning in the brain. We're not saying, yeah, you're not a pedophile, don't worry about it, because that helps reinforce that sticky thought being there. So in ERP, it probably sounds cruel if you're not used to ERP, 
or newer to this, you're like, why would that be the treatment? And and you're not alone in that thought. But there is research and there's science that goes to trying to create that new learning. However, if there's another way to address these things, if there's another option, and what we're talking about here with ICBT is another option where we right. can still address that. And it's not to say that it isn't hard because it's distressing for anybody, any OCD sufferer will tell you, yes, it's so distressing to deal with these OCD thoughts. But at the same time, being able to approach it from an ICBT direction feels more gracious, feels more merciful, feels more gentle, it could say. And that's probably anybody tuning in going like, what? I don't get it. Don't worry. We're going to go through it. But it is, it's a radically different approach. So you came into it, and I still feel, we were talking a little bit before we started recording, Catherine, but I still feel like there's a wave of trying to open up the treatment field here in the U.S. to other evidence-based practices, not to replace ERP, but to join ERP in the battle against OCD. And so I would imagine when you were coming up with these ideas, trying to help translate it in your mind, break it down, creating this, what ultimately became training material, I would imagine at that time, this was really radical in terms of coming (laughs) coming forward with another option. So can you tell me just a little bit about some of the challenges that you faced with that and what has helped spread a positive word about treatment options? Yeah, I mean, I think, so in my first class, the first round, I was nervous. And I think over time, I've learned from every class and I've honed in more on like what works for people, what doesn't. But in my first class, I definitely had some skeptic. And I I think I wasn't prepared for the animosity and the like sense of competition or warring sides. That was the real surprise. Mm-hmm. for me because to me it was like oh great there's this other option yeah how nice uh, shouldn't we all be so happy about that and I emphasize in the first class of the course like this is not a replacement this is not a substitute this is another tool that we can have in our toolbox and the more effective tools we have the better mm-hmm. but I think there are some therapists and this may be controversial to say, but I think people go into this field because they care and because they have compassion. And they sort of, over time, learn to develop the skin to ask people to learn to sit with the possibility that they could be a pedophile or that maybe they're contaminated. Or, you know, it, it's, it, you kind of have to develop a skin to do that. Mm-hmm. And that skin is developed from a good place, right? From compassion and the desire to help heal. But I think one of the reasons why ICBT can feel threatening is because if you learn to do that, and then here comes along this other therapy that isn't asking you to watch your client struggle, I think that's going to bring up a lot of complicated feeling Mm. in terms of just in terms of therapists and how past experiences that they've had with clients that OCD therapists for so long have had to justify and explain why what they're doing is helpful and effective to people outside of the OCD world. Mm-hmm. And then I think having this other therapy brings that back up where they 
make me feel that they have to justify. And it's really like, that's not what I'm about. I'm just like, this is another great option. A lot of therapists will say, I'm not an ERP therapist. I'm an OCD therapist. Mm -hmm. And I think that's a really great way to look at things. But I also think we as clinicians have to be honest about our strengths as well. Mm -hmm. And there may be people who like ICBT is just too cerebral and too heady and they love ERP because it's active and engaging and they're leaving their offices and it's just much more, it's a behavioral treatment, right? And so I think the danger of having this perspective of like, I'm an OCD therapist and that's that. I think it may not be entirely honest and it may lead someone who is a really, really great ERP therapist to be like, to say bad things about ICBT because they wouldn't be a very good ICBT therapist, mm, right? Mm -hmm. But they're a great ERP therapist. And there's no shame in saying, I'm an OCD therapist who treats with ERP and that's my strength. And we need that, right? And mm -hmm. similarly for people who, it, it is maybe too difficult to ask somebody to sit with with that discomfort and uncertainty and that this more cerebral approach works really, really well for them. And it's their language and it's easy to speak to people, mm -hmm. easy to speak to clients in those terms. And so I think there's no shame in being like, yeah, I'm an OCD therapist who treats with ICD. Yeah. Because we need both, right. right? Like it's great if you can become great at both, but they are so fundamentally different mm -hmm. that I think you end up, I mean, just being honest, I do think over time you end up favoring one or the other. Mm -hmm. And I think that's okay. And it doesn't mean the other one, the one that you don't favor is bad or wrong or inferior. It just means like you're better at this one. Mm -hmm. Right. And so in terms of offering services to people, like it's okay to be an OCD therapist who treats with ICBT or who treats with ERP because there are people who are going to seek you out specifically yeah. For those treatments, right? Yeah. Yeah. And ultimately, like you said, it just opens up more options. We don't want somebody that really doesn't know or understand ERP trying to lead ERP exposures that are maybe missing core fears or value-driven goals. And similarly, we don't want people going into ICBT going, okay, I have to learn this, but I don't believe it or I don't really mm -hmm. want to slow down to it because I know how the exposure will work for this person. And that's okay. Just being able to have those choices. You know, Catherine, I remember, and it's up to you if you want to talk about this or not, no wrong answer. But I remember when I met you over the summer, we talked just briefly about when I first started learning about ICBT. It's interesting. My whole journey is caught on tape, basically. Mm -hmm. It started with really researching. I think I saw an interview. I think it was you actually with Christina Orlova. I was doing some research. I got the manual. I was like, what? Could not wrap my head around it. And and you're normalized right. even 50, 60 times in. You're like, <laughs> I got to translate this because this is, this is not quite making sense yet. But when I first had Mike Hetty on the show, who the fam is familiar with, he's been on, he was on last season and this season. And he was trying to explain ICBT to me. You had told me I was really nervous about this interview that you were having with him. And so it's up to you if you feel comfortable or want to talk about that. But I would love to know what some of your reservations were about what would come out of that conversation. Yeah, I think, I mean, 
Mike is so articulate. And so I knew that you couldn't ask for someone better to explain things. But at the end of the day, it's your show, right? You get to edit and you get to provide the commentary in between. And I was like, oh, no, the drugs is someone who is not genuinely open. Like, this is just not going to go well. And the first interviews, first podcast interview that now the general public is hearing about this. It's not contained to the Facebook groups. And I was like, I just want it to go well. I just want it to have a fair shot and be represented fairly. And I knew you were an ERP person. And I was so impressed, not only with like your openness and fairness and genuine curiosity, not a skeptical curiosity. It was a genuine curiosity. But you asked really great questions. Right. And I love that you approached it from this, like a learner's mind, you mm-hmm. know, not a, not a skeptic, not a judge or jury mind, but it was, uh, let me understand this. Yeah. Right. Well, I, I thank you. And I appreciate that. But also I think that that's the thing when we think about OCD and how idiosyncratic OCD is, it doesn't look the same in any one person. Even if someone struggles with the same theme, we could both struggle with a theme and it's going to manifest differently for us. And so there is this really implicit understanding of, I would hope, <laughs> but I do believe from, from the practitioner side that we see how creative and unique OCD is to each given person. So I would think that even going in with a mindset around ERP, we should be going in with a framework, but we don't want to lose the forest through the trees. We have to see the person in that and how that, yes, the content, it follows a formula and we can do this with ERP. If you think about it in terms of the modules for ICBT too, we can follow a formula, but you have to be open to what is happening for that person. And I think it's important, even if we're like, we were just talking about, Catherine, how important it is that if you are strong in ERP and want to stay strong in ERP, go yo, like that, nothing wrong with that. If you're strong in ICBT and you want to stay strong in ICBT, great. If you want to learn both and be able to give that choice directly to your client and be able to feel confident in doing either choice, go you. But at the same time, no matter what, I would hope that all practitioners, even if we're like, my lane is ERP and that's where I'm driving, that's where I'm staying, that we're still having that openness, that learner's mind, because we need to see, even though it's not about the content, we need to see the person through that. And the person's unique and we need to learn them. We may be OCD experts, but they, they are experts of themselves and we need to learn from them. So I think it is important, whether we're talking about learning another theory or learning another case or learning another subtype or learning another vulnerable self-theme, pick a thing. I think we need to be open to it. And so it was a privilege for me to be able to learn more about it because I, I was like, man, this, I couldn't tell you why it made sense because it was so complicated at the time, but I was like, this This makes makes sense. I think I'm pretty sure. I mean, this like really resonates, but I need to learn more because I need to figure out why it resonates. And so it's been a learning journey. I'm still learning and I am really appreciative for so many of our colleagues, yourself certainly included there, just for helping facilitate this deeper learning and understanding and really what ICBT has to offer. So I think that brings us into a really good space to talk about what ICBT can and does offer. And we're not, for the purpose of this episode and being able to zoom in, fam, 
on some of these taboo themes. We're not going to spend a ton of time on how or why ICBT works the way it does. We will give like a real brief overview, but I really want to make sure that we have time to go into what this looks like then for these different taboo themes. And so it, it, it's hard. It's often hard to give a real brief overview, a succinct overview of ICBT just because it is so dense. But just for anybody that may be new to joining us, may be completely new to this acronym ICBT, can you give us a nice, short and sweet overview of what you would even share with a client coming in in terms of how you would explain what ICBT is and what that process could look like? Sure. Yeah. And it definitely depends if the person already has tried ERP before, the way that I explain it. But basically, ICBT is an evidence-based treatment that doesn't require exposure. People with OCD who either haven't been able to go to treatment because they're too afraid of having to do exposures or they've tried ERP and it hasn't worked, this is another option. And so unlike ERP and ASH, which aim to help people with OCD tolerate discomfort and uncertainty, the goal of ICBT is for clients to learn to trust themselves and stay connected to reality mm-hmm. rather than getting lost in the world of what is. Treatment focuses essentially on the thinking process that leads people to continue doubting something, even when they have all the information they need. So for example, how does someone who thinks having sex with a prepubescent child is abhorrent, how do they have fears that they could be a pedophile, right? That doesn't make sense. Or how does someone who acknowledges that they can't see anything on their hand still have fear that their hands could be dirty. Mm-hmm. In other words, why are they making inferences that contradict reality? Mm-hmm. So as ICBT therapists, we help clients learn to stay connected to reality by listening to what their senses say rather than getting absorbed in a story mm-hmm. that exists only in their imagination. Mm-hmm. And that clients also learn to see themselves for who they really are based on their actual everyday behavior rather than taking seriously this unwanted imaginary version of themselves Mm -hmm. that they fear they could become or are or at risk of becoming were it not for their compulsion. And so by staying connected to reality through the senses and not getting lost in feared stories about themselves or what is possible, Mm-hmm. People with OCD tap into skills that they already use in non-OCD areas of their lives, which I think is super important and kind of adds this element of, hey, I already do this in like 90% of my life, mm-hmm. right? It's just in this one area where I use different reasoning. And so they learn to make inferences based on common sense, existing knowledge and observation, mm-hmm. CEO, based on your CEO. <laughs> And learn to feel safe trusting themselves. Yeah. So it is really a a cool theory because I've described it before as kind of like a love letter to yourself. When you are going through ICBT, Mm. you start to realize, like, I am not this monster. Here are my strengths. And it's understandable why I got so absorbed because I was using all the amazing logic that has taken me so far in life just applied in these little slices in this obsessional area, it blew up and it was so scary. 
And so validating that and realizing, yeah, I can trust myself. And I already do trust myself in a lot of other ways. This isn't a brand new skill for me. It's just my brain has been so good at going into the story, into the imagination. Here, when I'm really good at being a fact finder in all these other spaces. And so it takes practice. It takes slowing down the, the reasoning process and seeing how we're arriving at what we are arriving. And then if something in your here and now reality validates that, then you go, well, yeah, then I should be concerned, right? So it's a really good, helpful overview of what ICBT aims to do. And so now we're going to look at this. We're going to zoom in and look at different taboo themes. And as we said, and as you were sharing about at the start of the show, really with your client that was struggling with pedophilia OCD, first of all, can we describe what pedophilia OCD is and help differentiate it from folks from what true pedophilia is? Because I think people just hear anything pedophilia and they go, nope, nope, not about that. And the sufferer, the OCD sufferers would be right there with you. Yep, yep, not about that. And so would you be able to kind of help us understand, or the fam here, what is pedophilia OCD? Sure. So I'll start off by saying what is pedophilia. So pedophilia is someone who has sexual attraction and desire to engage with a prepubescent child, right? So those are critical things. The most critical is desire, right? Mm -hmm. Someone with pedophilia OCD does not have desire, does not have attraction to prepubescent children, but they, for various reasons, are afraid that they could or are a pedophile nonetheless. And so when we think in terms of ego dystonic and ego syntonic, the person who is a pedophile, the desire, the thoughts of engaging sexually with a child, those are syntonic, right, to who they are. Mm -hmm. Whereas someone with pedophilia OCD, it's dystonic. It does not reflect who they are. Or what they want. It's a fear that's grounded in nothing. It's not grounded in desire, right? Right. Yeah. So very, very good point. And we've talked about egocentonic and egodystonic here on the podcast. But yeah, I mean, if you are truly a pedophile, having a thought about being a pedophile would be like no biggie, right? You'd be like, yep, it's on brand, right? That is not the same thing that is happening when someone said, oh my gosh, I can imagine being in that chair for the pedophile who was on the stand. And, and now I'm worried, like, what if I could be a pedophile? There's nothing about this that is remotely appealing, that is remotely desired. But it is a theme that holds a lot of stigma, as we can imagine, because pedophilia is not OK. It's not safe. It's not something that we cheer on in society. No, there's going to be some real consequences for engaging in pedophilia. But when we're talking about pedophilia, OCD, that is not the same. That is not somebody that wants to act on this. And often folks with pedophilia, OCD, will be really attuned to their reaction in their environment around people. And something that can pop up in, in this realm is when people are fixated on this content in a distressing way, well, if I'm thinking about how much I don't want to think about children sexually, and then I might have something like a groinal response, then that feels like proof to the person suffering going, oh my gosh, I must, I must, oh my gosh, because they think I'm having this reaction. And so you were distinguishing, it's not about attraction, it's not about desire in pedophilia OCD, but sometimes there can be these 
physiological responses that get a lot of weight to them from the sufferer. And so can you explain, because this is something that probably comes up a lot, whether we're talking about sexual orientation or talking about sometimes some scrupulosity, but certainly within this realm of harm or pedophilia, OCD, this idea of groinal responses can be really, really triggering for folks. And so can we talk a little bit more about why that isn't proof? That's not here, no evidence that you are the sicko, but it's really completely separate. Yeah. So the example that I like to use in my class and with clients is if I ask you, do you have to sneeze and really think about it? Do you have to sneeze? You might say, no. And I said, yeah, but really think about it. And then you might draw your attention to your nose and maybe you'd feel a tingle. And then maybe you'd be like, I don't think so, but maybe, I mean, my nose is tingling now. Mm-hmm. That's very different than when you actually have to sneeze, right? When you actually have to sneeze, you do not have to ask yourself if you have to sneeze, mm-hmm. right? You know, your body tells you, you do not have to scan. The evidence comes up by itself. and. With pedophilia OCD, if you scan for something, you can find anything, right? Like mm-hmm. your body will respond. Your your brain will connect to that part of your body and will sort of activate. You can get feelings in your toes. If you can get, get feelings in your scalp, whatever, wherever you draw your attention. That's very different than genuine arousal. Because when you are genuinely aroused and genuinely desirous, you do not have to ask right? You know, it feels good. It's nice. It's fun. You don't have to check in with yourself. Like your body tells you on its own. Mm -hmm. So the problems come in when there's scanning. And so I always tell people like anything that you find from scanning or checking is just planted evidence and it doesn't count. Mm -hmm. It's that's not real. In order for it to be real evidence, it has to arise organically and it has to speak to you without you scanning. Otherwise, it doesn't count, right? Like it's the difference between noticing a tingling after you ask yourself, do I have to sneeze versus actually needing to sneeze. And it's such a huge difference, right? Mm -hmm. You can plant evidence for anything, but it doesn't make it real. Yeah, it's interesting. And when we think about physiological responses too, sometimes our body is gonna do things, especially depending on the age, for teenagers, let's say, you know, that are in the awkwardness of their sexual development and they're just all over development. You know, sometimes there can be a rhyme or reason, sometimes there can be no rhyme or reason. Things are just, hormones are flowing. And so what you're speaking to is when we stop then and we apply it at either out of context where you could also maybe have arousal while you're like buying parsley. But you're probably not like, oh, my gosh, right. it's the parsley. Why? You know, I'm attracted to parsley. It's probably not a concern. You probably be like, oh, it's awkward. I'm gonna... and, and it feels like everybody's looking, but nobody's looking. They're just grabbing their crap and going. Right. But when it comes around this certain thing, right, because that would be really awful if, if I was attracted to this kid. I'm not. But why am I thinking about it if I'm not? It's really just as matter of fact. And uh, relevant as the parsley was to you having an arousal response. And so being able to... It's just society loads one 
and not the other. No, so, we aren't afraid of like parsley sexual, you know? Yes, parsley sexuals. That's true. <laughs> yes, yes. I love it. That's, I love that. But yeah, you're right. Because there isn't a stigma about parsley. There's not a penal code written in law enforcement, written wherever you are in the world. It's not like part of the law and order around parsley. But around kids, yes, kids are vulnerable and kids could be harmed. And certainly when we think about then sexuality from an adult, from someone 18 or even an older teenager to a much younger child. Now we're talking about that crime territory and there is the stigma. And so this isn't anything about pedophilia. This is as much oh. about the parsley as it is the pedophilia. And so I think it is really an important point. And so when we look at something like that, and you can see this with incest, you can see this with bestiality, somebody that may be afraid, maybe they see their pet and they're feeling arousal and now they're attributing it to the pet and they're feeling like, gosh, who am I? What, what kind of monster am I that I'm having this arousal? And so can you talk with us a bit about what it looks like if we're not sitting there teeter-tottering on the maybe you could be, maybe you're not, but looking at the compassion that we get to experience within ICBT around a theme like pedophilia, OCD, can you help the family understand what treatment might look like for that sufferer? Yeah, so I'll, I'll usually try to pick other examples. How do you know that you have to pee, right? And it's like, well, I don't know. I just like my bladder feels full and I, I don't have to go. And I start thinking about the toilet and then I just know people, that's everyone's saying, I just know, mm -hmm. right? Well, what if I asked you, do you think maybe you do, maybe you don't have to pee? Like, you know, how would that look for you? And you could analyze and be like, well, I, I guess I could pee, mm -hmm. right? But when you really have to, you know, same with being cold. I'll try to pick some sort of similar example mm -hmm. and people then realize, okay, yeah, when I actually do experience something, it's very different than what I'm doing now with all this scanning and checking and questioning. Mm -hmm. And I'll also remind people like, okay, let's look at the definition of pedophilia. It's the one thing that makes somebody a pedophile is desire, right? If that's not there, nothing else matters. So if you have like a weird dream, if you have a groinal response, if you get, you know, random kind of uncomfortable images in your mind, mm -hmm. none of those matter if that one thing, that desire isn't there. It, that's all just like fluff and extra information, right? But OCD tends to capitalize on those things and uses them as evidence. And so pointing out to people, okay, what is and isn't evidence, right? And I'll ask people, could you present this as evidence We'll do sort of like a court of law exercise. Could you present this as evidence in a court of law? And the argument, well, one time in the past, that's not evidence for this crime, right? Mm -hmm. Nor is nor is saying, I read a study about that's not evidence for this crime, right? The only evidence that is legitimate evidence for this crime is actual desire, right? Mm -hmm. And if that's not there, all of these other things are just false evidence, right? Mm -hmm. Yeah. And so I'll have people go through this exercise. I'll start with, so I'll use this character, Jeremy. And so Jeremy apparently is one of like the most common names for criminals. Just happens to be the case. Really? And my, so, my brother's name is Jeremy. So I'm enjoying really? it a little bit. <laughs> yeah. yeah. 
So let's say you're on a jury and there's someone, a 35-year-old white male named Jeremy is accused of murder. Okay. I'll ask, like, could you use this fact that, like, Jeremy is the most common name for criminals? Could you use that as evidence that this Jeremy committed murder? No, that's absurd, right? Mm -hmm. Well, what about if you learned that Jeremy in the past, like, did drug trafficking? Is that evidence that he committed this murder? No, it's not. It's irrelevant. And actually, a, a judge would probably prevent the jury from knowing that so that it didn't do their opinion right and they um, do they 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 cue out prior bad acts you know if we consider this drug trafficking charge we don't want that to color the deliberation process on what you're going to conclude because it is irrelevant so in legal right it is irrelevant you're right yeah and so going through things and people sort of intuitively know this like Okay, yeah, that wouldn't count. I couldn't be like, I read a study and, and present, you know, a lawyer would never present that mm -hmm. as evidence. Well, what about this one Jeremy in Texas who committed the exact same crime? Doesn't matter. It's irrelevant. Right. And so getting people to see what is relevant information and what is not and helping them see that they know this in other areas of their life. Mm -hmm. It's very intuitive to them. But then when it comes to their OCD, they use a very different system. Mm -hmm. And then with parental responses, I'll often give this like the metaphor of, for example, of, of slicing into a lemon. So I'll ask people, okay, imagine you've got this really plump, yellow, juicy lemon and you slice into it and there's all this juice that sprays and then you slice it into, slice into it again. And now you have this wedge and it just looks so soft and plump and oh, you just bring it up to your mouth and you'd bite into it. And I'll say like, what happened with your body? Well, my mouth started to water a little bit. Mm -hmm. Okay, well, what does that tell us? Does that tell us that there's an actual lemon in front of your face? No, all it does is it tells us that your body responded to a story, mm -hmm. right? Does it tell us you actually want a lemon? No, it just your body responded to a story, right? It doesn't, a groinal response doesn't indicate anything except that you're having a groinal response, right? It doesn't indicate desire. It doesn't indicate that a child is even there, right? Like anything that comes, your body will have certain responses to the stories that we tell ourselves. And we have to be careful about not linking that as proof of something real that's right in front of us. Yeah, no, it's a really good example. Actually, I say something similar to clients. I I will usually, especially if kids are involved, I'll be like, think of a Sour Patch. Which one's your favorite? Do you have a favorite color Sour Patch? Yeah. Which one? And I'm like, think of what it looks like. It's like a little dust on it and whatever. And then they're like, oh my gosh, my mouth is watering. Yeah. And it's, it. although they're often like, oh, I could go for a Sour Patch. That's not a bad idea. But it is interesting because our body, if we were just like mouth, water, mouth, water, I mean, eventually, like you said, drawing and maintaining the tension, you might start to feel something. Is that watering? Is it not? But whatnot. But we're really having to pull for that response. And in another situation, I can just bring up something like sour patch and people can immediately start watering their mouth. And so it doesn't mean we're eating the sour patch right now. It doesn't mean the lemon 
as you were saying, is here right now. It's not evidence of anything other than that our body responds to stories. That's what it's evidence of. Our body responds to stories. That's why we get caught up in these love songs and we enjoy going to the movies or enjoying art or different things like that because it can make us feel things. We see the story and it moves us. But it doesn't mean that it's unlocking hidden desires and thumbprints of the monster that you could possibly might be. It's just a story. So the story is what has created this response. Whether we wanted it or not, it, it happens. We start thinking of sour things or we're going to start to salivate, things like that. And so I think that's a really good point. So you're talking about helping them search through the evidence and realize what's evidence and what is hearsay. Because if you've watched any amount of lawyer shows or court or anything, you know, hearsay, objection, hearsay. Hearsay doesn't pass the sniff test when it comes to evidence. But hearsay is one of the very popular forms of reasoning that we use. And ICBT teaches quite a bit about our different reasoning styles. And though those are fine, we can collect information that way. When we're applying it to the imagined possibility that OCD has planted before us, right? Then now we're talking about not really going off of evidence in here now. We are caught in a story and completely absorbed in that, right? Right. I think it's important for people to realize that just because something is true, that doesn't mean it is relevant. So yes, you may know someone who knows someone who X, Y, and Z happened to them. What does that have to do with you? Like, yes, it's true. This study found that blah, blah, blah happens. What does that have to do with you in the here and now? Right. Just like if someone is on trial in court, the fact that there was some study, okay, that doesn't say anything about their particular case, what they're being charged for. The other thing I wanted to bring up too is Emily Nagowski has a really great YouTube video Mm -hmm. about this, but how we can become our bodies can respond in ways that very much contradict how we actually feel our actual desires. And she gives some examples. It is possible to be raped and have an orgasm, right? Your body just responds in certain ways. It's, it's possible to get an erection under duress, right? If we said, okay, well, the fact that they had an orgasm, that must mean they want it. I mean, that's very problematic. We would never say that. Right. But your body will respond to certain things if you've linked them to sex, right? And that doesn't mean you want those things. She gives this example in the video that like her husband said something about how he saw a donut and he got an erection. And it's just because he had kind of linked these two things, a donut hole, whatever. Mm-hmm. And it doesn't mean he's like sexually attracted to donut, mm-hmm. right? It means like if he has a story that links one thing to one thing and then his body responds to that. So just, you know, keeping that in mind that our bodies, if we imagine lemons, our bodies know lemons are sour and whether we want the lemon or not, our mouths are going to water. So if we are scanning for sexual imagery with children and we let ourselves go into that place, it's very possible that your body will respond 
because you've linked that with sex, right? Mm-hmm. And yet you may feel like that's freaking disgusting. I want none of that. Like, I would never do that. What is wrong with me? And yet your body may still respond. And your body's response isn't evidence that you want something, right? Mm-hmm. Yeah, I think that's the hard thing for a lot of people because when they look at physiological responses, somatic responses, they go, but that's evidence. It's evidence. It's here. It's now. It's evidence. And so being able to understand it's evidence of what? It's the story that correlates it. And so, again, it's children, parsley, your spouse, could be anything, literally, in terms of how you're linking the story. And so that's only evidence that you related that to a story. It's a hard thing, I think, for people to go, well, I feel like I'm cherry picking and I'm excusing these feelings over here, but not over here. What would you say to that in terms of, and I I know really what we were just talking about speaks to that, but if someone comes back with that response and they say, hey, but I feel like, what if it is an example that I secretly desire? Because it can be a really, really tough thing to shake. And once the OCD brain is tethered to it, it can be really, really hard to get to a place and understand that. And so ICBT does address that on a very upstream way on how we're coming to these inferences of doubt. But how would you help explain to somebody that is kind of getting stuck on, but I did have that response right now? Yeah. So I always say, did it happen before you scanned or after you scanned? Mm-hmm. And it's always after. And so I said, then it doesn't count because you can plant anything, right? Like, tell me if it comes to you without you looking for it first, right? Right. And that's one thing, but it's always after people scan or they're kind of on heightened alert. And that usually helps people be like, yeah, that's true. I was looking for it. Yeah, that's a really good point. And so when we're looking at themes, one of the things you said in the overview about ICBT as well is not only are we looking for that evidence, but often the compulsions are the charades that OCD says, if you don't do, you are. It's proof that you're this, this monster or you're neglectful or whatever the theme is. And so in terms of you also talked about like being able to learn about your real self. And so can you help folks understand what it looks like in teasing through and understanding the vulnerable self theme and how we can get back to a place where we get to embrace the real self when it comes to some of these more taboo themes? And it works the same, I know, for all the themes, but just as we're thinking through some of these more stigmatized themes here in today's culture. Yeah. So we know that people with OCD tend to have like a tenuous sense of self. And oftentimes OCD most commonly shows up during these periods of transition in life. So it'll be, you know, like early adolescence or like prepubescence, you know, when you're suddenly like you're having crushes and maybe people are going out and you may start hiding things from your parents. And it's just this really transitional time. Mm -hmm. The most common actually is at age 19. And we know that's a huge period of transition. Like you're in college now, or maybe you're, you have a job. If you're not in college, you're just kind of detaching from your parents. And yet you're still sort of dependent on them in some ways. You're starting to think about relationships and your future jobs and where you're going to live. And it's all of this period of transition. And then we see it too with new parents, which again, another huge period of transition. 
And so if you have a tenuous sense of self, you're kind of primed to think of the worst version of yourself. And for many people, the worst thing they could possibly be is a pedophile, Mm -hmm. right? Other worst possible could be like a parent who kills their kids. If someone is in a relationship with someone they really love, like maybe they'll start to doubt, what if I cheat? And so it's really this, these taboo themes show up because they really show what's important to the person, right? So if someone with pedophilia OCD thinks that being a pedophile is the worst possible thing somebody could be, that shows us something about them, right? And what they value, which is, you know, not exploiting the vulnerable. And, but it, it's very sad because they're kind of turning to their greatest fear is what they think is the worst possible thing that they possibly be. And so when we talk about the vulnerable self, the stories that we carry with us, stories like, oh my God, what if I see my niece and I'm left alone with her and I do something? Stories like that, they're informed by something, mm-hmm. right? And they're informed by the way that we see ourselves. And so addressing that view of the self or the, the vulnerable self theme or the feared self is what allows the shift in the story which leads to a different inference, Mm -hmm. right? Okay, so how do we figure out what our real self is? Like, what does that even look like? What does that even mean? Mm -hmm. And in ICBT, it's, okay, well, it's how you behave in your everyday life. It's not like your aspirations. It's not this idealized version of yourself. It's very fundamental day-to-day behavior. Mm -hmm. And so what I'll do with clients is I'll have them pick yesterday or pick earlier today if it's late in the afternoon. Tell me about your day. Okay, well, I went to the market and then I went home and then I prepped dinner. All the very basic mundane things. Mm -hmm. And you say, okay, well, tell me why you did that. What was important to you in that moment? Well, I went to the market because we're out of food and like my family needs to be nourished. Okay, well, what does that say about you? It says that you're somebody who is attentive to their family, who cares about their family's well-being. That sounds like a pretty caring and attentive person, mm-hmm. right? Or someone says, I got to work early today because I wanted to avoid rush hour and look good for my boss. Okay, well, what kind of person arrives early to avoid rush hour to impress their boss? Sounds like someone who's, you know, pretty planful and conscientious mm-hmm. and sounds like someone who is ambitious and, and cares about their career and succeeding, mm-hmm. right? And so even from these very basic, mundane thing, who we are still shines through. And so when I teach this in my classes, people always say, yeah, but what if somebody is really hindered by their OCD? Like, what if they're homebound? It doesn't matter. What they do throughout their day is still going to be reflective of the person they are. Mm -hmm. Did they get up? Did they get out of bed? Did they shower? Did they feed their dog? If they're feeding their dog, if they're showering, it shows they are attending to themselves. It shows that they're being selfless and attentive to the needs of others. Mm-hmm. Right. And so the point is to look at these very everyday basic things in your behavior. It's not like I lifted a car and saved a child. It's I went to the supermarket. Right. And these things tell us about who we are because we have evidence for them. Right. We actually did them. They actually occurred. Mm-hmm. And so often what I'll have people do is write out a story about who the OCD says they could be. Well, the OCD says I'm really incapable or with pedophilia, for example, like The OCD says I'm capable of hurting kids and 
there was one time where I saw this little girl and thought she was cute and then wondered what she'd look like when she were older. And then that got me thinking and blah, blah, here's all this false evidence. Okay, so that's what the OCD says. You could be the OCD says you could be this monster. Let's create another story where you counter each of those things, but with real evidence from the here and now. So, okay, so you have, I'm a monster who's capable of hurting kids. Let's flip that. I'm a decent person who cares about the vulnerable. And then tell me how in your everyday life that shows up. Mm -hmm. Well, I care deeply about my nieces and nephews. I would do anything for them. I call them on their birthdays. I visit them whenever I can. I always ask my sister how they're doing. You know, things like this, actual things that actually take place. And then you look at both of these stories Mm -hmm. and you say, which one sounds more real? And inevitably, even if you feel more attached to the first one, it's going to be pretty hard not to say, well, no, actually, the second one is more real because it's chock full of evidence, whereas the first one is just full of possibilities and hypotheticals. Right. 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 Yeah. Really, really great point. And I love the emphasis that you explained, too, in we don't need to be like superhero version of ourselves to be real and that's not realistic right like i'm sure fam you're great but none of us are superheroes we all have our different ups and downs and struggles but when we look at that real self constructed out of real evidence then even kind of an average morning i mean you are a superhero compared to what ocd would have you believe right in just being a genuine caring person that is going about their day. And really, we can see the evidence of that carrying through multiple small little interactions that OCD wouldn't have us even pay attention to. (laughs) It wants to zoom in on the possibility over here. And so I think that is one thing that I really have loved about doing ICBT as well, because you don't have to be somebody that you're not. You get to be you. But OCD is like, but that might not be you. This might be you. Like, this is really reorienting yourself and grounding yourself in who you really are. And that's that's why I feel like it's this love letter to yourself where you get to go, no, no, I'm, I'm good. I'm trying. Not perfect. No one is, but I'm trying. And evidence supports that. That passes right. the sniff test. That passes the court. That, that will be admitted. Mm-hmm. Yes. Yes. Right. Yeah. And so I love that you were able to bring that up. Also, you brought up another important theme. It happens not just for moms, it can happen for dad, it can get, happen for chosen family and caregivers and people that love their little ones a lot. But that fear around what if I could harm my child? What if I'm dangerous? CD says, what kind of person does that? Oh, yeah, you're an, it, maybe a monster, maybe somebody that's irresponsible, maybe somebody that's careless or neglectful. But really getting to zoom in and go, oh, I can see the evidence that compounds throughout a day. And not even in compulsive ways, just in those little, little seemingly meaningless interactions. But they actually support that, no, you are a caring person. You are attending to all these things. Folks don't end up in therapy just for fun. So they're going out even in seeking help to make sure that they can be the best possible them. And so really the process is turning on that light and helping illuminate that you're already that person in lots of different ways. But the threat, the OCD, would have you believe that you could be this bad person. That makes sense why that is so distressing. And so being able to deconstruct that and realize when you're going into the story, 
how you can get out of the story, it's really, really powerful. So I wonder with that client, by the time ICVT, your your awareness and learning journey started with it, did you happen to still have that client at the time? Yeah, and I quickly switched. Yeah. Switched over. And what did you notice the difference being for them to the extent that we can talk about how they received ICBT intern? Yeah, I think when we talk about inferential confusion, having her realize how she was coming to certain conclusions, the fact that you can imagine yourself sitting in a courtroom and being accused of a crime, that's not evidence that you're capable of that crime, right? It's evidence that you're capable of empathizing with someone in a certain situation, mm-hmm. right? And having her recognize her various forms of inferential confusion. We talked a lot about reverse reasoning, which is essentially when you come to a conclusion first and then gather evidence to support it, mm-hmm. as opposed to what we normally do, which is gathering evidence and then coming to a conclusion. Right. And doing a lot of real self-work too, so that she can see all of these fears, actually the very opposite is what shows up in your everyday behavior. Yeah. And I use this example too with being president. Like, let's say that you're someone who you're not super political. You don't watch the news. You try to vote, but maybe you don't sometimes. And it's just not that important to you. Okay. Is it possible that you could become president? I mean, yeah, sure. But given your behavior in everyday life, is that possibility relevant? Like, sure, it's possible. Anything is possible. But in order for that possibility to be relevant, it has to show up in your everyday behavior. And it's not if you like aren't even watching the news or mm-hmm. voting. And so helping people see that in order for these fears about who you could become to be relevant, yeah. they actually have to show up in your everyday behavior. And if they don't, then they're just hypotheticals yeah. that are like becoming president. Yeah. Again, that's, I think, a really helpful example. When you mentioned that you think in analogies, I, the whole fam here is probably like, yes, 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 Nicole thinks in analogies too. <laughs> but I, what I think is really, really helpful, because we're talking about the impact of a story. I mean, when we're looking at analogies and we can directly apply some of these kind of meaty, heady concepts into what that looks like, I think the presidential elections... Perfect. Yeah. Could you? Could you? I mean, it's we can't say it's impossible that you would never become president. You could. But yeah, again, the evidence is like the chances that you would randomly elevate to the position where your candidate, let alone voted in as the president. Like there's a lot of legwork that goes into that and the evidence isn't supporting. At the very least, you have to want to. Yeah. Right. That's not there. Like, it's not relevant. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Because you still get a choice. If someone were like, but do you want to be president? Nope. Okay, then you're probably not going to be, right? Because you're, you're like, and that's okay, right? And, and so understanding through those different vignettes, those different templates, being able to go like, okay, so this is what this means here. And for a lot of folks that are struggling with their OCD, it's hard for them sometimes to recognize all the ways they do this naturally in other areas of their life that does not rub up against this vulnerable self thing, this fear of who they might be, right? And so I think, too, it can be really helpful 
just as we were talking earlier, if we really link things together, then we can think about it that way. But if it can be really helpful to link the various ways we're already doing this. We're living our real self when it comes to getting kids to school, when it comes to doing dishes, when it comes to a number of things that we write off as unimportant. They're actually a lot more relevant than what the OCD theme is, what the vulnerable self theme is. And so I think that's a really, really good point. So in terms of for family, then, when we're thinking about the families, spouses, partners, loved ones, and someone's struggling with a taboo theme that maybe they've been able to share, maybe they haven't, but just building the mindfulness for the family members, what is the best way to support their OCD warrior? When they're going through a process like ICBT and they're trying to address, and let's say in this scenario that they do know, you know that your loved one struggles with pedophilia, OCD, or worried about abusing one of your children, that form of OCD. What does support look like? Because it's very different in the ERP realm in terms of how the family reacts and responds. And so what does that look like for family members listening going, okay, so how do I help with this? Mm -hmm. Yeah. So it's important to know that ICBT has a very different take on reassurance. Mm -hmm. So with ERP and ACT, like reassurance is not good. You're not supposed to ever provide reassurance. With ICBT, Fred Artema, the guy, one of the the co-creators of ICBT, He'll sometimes say like, well, what's wrong with reassurance, right? And by that, he doesn't mean excessive reassurance. But if you have to check in with someone and say, like, when I go out with my husband and we meet new people, I'll often be like, did I say anything weird? And he'll say no. And then it's like, okay, good, we move on. And sometimes having somebody that you trust to remind you of reality can be really, really helpful. Mm -hmm. Now, if you have to continue to ask them over and over, then it's a sign that you're distrusting yourself because you're not even trusting it with your hearing, mm-hmm. right? But if you need sort of that touchstone of reality, that's fine. So that's one thing. And then two, the other points are, there's these two questions that I think can be really, really helpful for people. One is asking someone, do you think you'd come to that conclusion if you didn't have your OCD story? Is really powerful. Great question. And then the other is, do you think that you'd, be concerned about that if you weren't buying into your fear self. And that's another one. And both of those are so powerful because it encourages them to get back in touch with reality themselves and help them see in that moment, oh my God, yeah, I'm just, it's only because of this story that I worried about this right now. Mm-hmm. The third question, actually, there's one more, is asking someone, well, what do you know for sure in this moment? Well, all I know for sure in this moment is that I have no desire to do anything to kids. And yes, I think that child is cute, but those are the only two things that are true, right? Anything beyond that, anything beyond what I know for sure in this moment comes from my imagination. And so that can also be a helpful question to ask. Yeah, I really like that. And anybody who has been going through ERP, and this isn't to say if you're doing ERP, jump over to ICBT, no. If, if ERP is working for you, great. If if it's not and you're feeling a little hopeless and you want to try a different option, ICBT is a great mm-hmm. option. It's an option. It's not a cure. Neither is ERP. But if you're listening to this and going through ERP, the impact 
the treatment has on not only the sufferer holding in space and enduring the pain, as we were talking about at the top of the show, around these really worst fears and and really distressing themes. The family feels that too, because the family joins in the trench there. And when there's talk about family accommodation, it's us doing what we've been doing is only going to reinforce the OCD. And so it becomes this very abrupt, seemingly, I don't know if we used the word harsh before, but again, it's not to say the meaning is harsh, but it is this real strong kickback at OCD. And so when something that I find that a lot of family members appreciate about ICBT is they get to ask questions that doesn't feel like I have to change everything about who I am. You will naturally, if the person isn't getting to the compulsion because they're able to resolve some of those confused conclusions, they're able to start making observations based on sensory evidence right now instead of these inferences of doubt, you're not going to have something to not accommodate to because they're not going to be worried about it. There's nothing to be done if I'm not actually attracted to children. There's nothing to be done. I get to just move on, move forward with my life. So does my family. And so I feel like it's another benefit I've found to ICBT is it doesn't feel like this radical change where people are now questioning themselves, whether they're the OCD sufferer or not. And they're like, I don't know how to relate to you because I'm finding out everything I did was apparently wrong or or feeding OCD. And now I feel like crap even more because I'm making it worse for my loved one. And so being able to instead give some compassion and grace and really understand that, even for yourself, would I be responding to them differently if this wasn't about their OCD story? Because I'm a mom, right? And my son has OCD. There are things that come up and trigger in his OCD, just like for any of us that have OCD. And there are others that don't bother him at all. Would I give him a pass in this other area if it wasn't for OCD? Probably not, right? Like I probably treat things generally similar ways and there wouldn't be kind of this special category of this is how we're going to tiptoe around this area. And so it's a great question, not only for the sufferer, but one that the family can reflect on. Would I be responding to them differently if this wasn't their OCD? So they get to have that introspective thought. You get to have that introspective thought and you get to reconnect to your instincts as a parent as a partner, as maybe an adult child to an adult parent, whatever the scenario is. And so it's really, I think, a beautiful thing in that way as well in terms of treatment, because it's not to say good positive outcomes don't come from ERP. They do. And and the family can be like, oh my gosh, this saved our life, right? I've heard it both ways. I've heard it from people doing ICBT. I've heard it from people doing ERP. But it's a very, very different thing. I don't go over and over family accommodation because when we truly are able to target what got us to the point of compulsing, we don't get to the point of compulsing anymore. And so mom and dad don't have to participate in that whole song and dance anymore. It's just a very different conversation. And so I I really appreciate you coming in today, Catherine, and just sharing more about really the hope that there is for the sufferers, for the family, for the loved ones, for this community. There's hope when we have more options. There's hope when we're able to realize we can trust ourselves. There's hope when we can 
go back to living our value-driven lives instead of feeling at threat of what we might be. And so I think this is such a powerful message, particularly when it comes to this content, these taboo themes. And so this is just, this has been fantastic. And I really thank you for coming in. Before you go, is there anything up and coming that you want to tell the fam about that you're doing and how people can learn more about this work and anything else? Yeah. So my website, katherinegoldhouse.com. You can find information about my trainings on there. I usually do one every season. The next one is April. And then I have a, a fall and winter one as well. Mm-hmm. So you can find out about the class and, and signing up. And then also I have a new Instagram account that's all about ICBT. And it's at ICBT Therapist. Yes, yes. I love that Instagram account too, because as we've talked across time here at the podcast, we've we noticed that a lot of the OCD social media content creation is around ERP. And that's again, that's not a bad thing. It's I think it's helpful for people applying it often and, and feeling or at least knowing that they're not alone. But for ICBT, I think it's harder for folks sometimes to wrap their mind around. And then Because it's like, okay, what does that look like? And so you started that account, and I love that, because you do help explain what you're showing on different posts that you're creating, but also just having those examples, and that can also show up in your feed, also helps continue to provide that visibility and awareness that there are options, and this might be a great option. And so just anything that we can learn from any side of evidence-based treatment that can provide hope is worth time and and worth checking out. So I do love that you're doing that because there are so few content creators doing ICBT content. And I really, I I think it's such a, such a needed resource. So thank you too, because I'm sure I know, I know at least we're doing the podcast and the social media connected to the podcast where I'm like, oh my gosh, it takes time. So, (laughs) so Thank you for all that you're doing. And as you've heard, fam, you can check out at the website. You can see what trainings are coming up. And those are for clinicians. But yeah, I mean, I think this is such a great resource. And just we really, really appreciate you taking the time today. Yeah. Thank you so much for having me. And thank you so much for all the work that you're doing. It's it's making a big difference. Thank you. We're better together. So I'm happy to be a part of that. Thank you for that. All right, fam. I mean, how great is Catherine? Am I right? I mean, come on. I'm so appreciative of the ways she's been able to really break down this model and treatment to make it so accessible for folks drowning in these taboo themes. I just love how many great examples she had how the ICBT treatment model could be used when wrestling with the content we discussed today. So just another huge thanks, Catherine, for your time, for your heart, and for your ability to translate these really difficult, tricky concepts with the fam. And you know, Catherine also made my job incredibly easy for today's intrusive thought segment because I asked her, hey, what would you tell the fam about ways we can think about this? And she gave us three great questions. It does not get easier than that. So thanks, Kate. She said, number one, Asking your family member with OCD, would you still be coming to this conclusion if the OCD story wasn't there? That's one way we can help apply this information and pivot our loved one back into reality. 
Number two, do you think you'd be concerned about all of this, all these details, this content, if you weren't buying into your feared self? So again, this may mean you're far enough in the ICBD treatment process to have that understanding of who your feared self is, that vulnerable self theme, and also understanding who your real self is in opposition to that. And then number three, what do you know for sure in this moment? Because as Kate said, anything beyond the evidence in the here and now comes from the imagination. So I I love that because the intrusive thought segment is the application segment of my show fam. And these are three practical questions that you can use with your fam, which can really feel refreshing in terms of the rules of engagement between OCD and non-OCD loved ones. But also a question that I had added to that list fam was one that is common. And I really postured it more towards ICBT and asking, would you be responding to your loved one differently if it wasn't for your warrior's OCD story? So that is the shift, the framing that I added. But this is a very common question that myself, Kate, our colleagues will ask. And if you think about it, it's even very, very similar to the feedback that we got from Dr. Christine Durso just a few weeks ago when we were talking about family accommodation. The verbiage and the framing is a little different because we're working from different ends of the obsessional sequence. But this idea of what I'd be doing, saying, reacting in the way I am if they didn't have OCD, it's a helpful idea. So if you're listening to this episode and you're thinking, hey, I'm really intrigued about ICBT and how that can apply, especially in themes like we talked about today. But we are living that ERP life, and I'm not sure how these application questions apply to me or to us. Here's the common thread. Am I changing my response based on the story, whether we need to avoid, minimize, or neutralize feared outcomes? It's very similar. And even more importantly, would I be doing that if it weren't for OCD? Because in both questions, ultimately, if we're altering reactions for OCD, then this is a tool that can help recalibrate ourselves into the present moment. And in the present, we can choose to see it for what it is, a story. So there's my goal for you, fam, because in the words of our past guest, Carl Robbins, an advice he was given many years ago, be careful about the stories you create. Stories can create all the feels, fam. But if there isn't evidence right here, right now, then they're fictional, imagined, and irrelevant. And I have to say that, (laughs) that's actually really, really good news. Thank you for joining me and our OCD family community. If you enjoyed what you heard today, please like and subscribe to the OCD Family Podcast wherever you enjoy your podcasts. Did you find this content helpful? Please consider leaving a review. The more people that know they're not alone, the better. For more information regarding today's podcast, please visit ocdfamilypodcast.com and remember to join the email list while you're there. It will provide you with the most up-to-date information, resources, and the demo on the family chatter. Oh yeah, nothing says family like Catherine taking on doubt and throwing irrelevant stories out. That's right, I went there, and you can too at OCDFamilyPodcast.com.